Our scripture reading today will be taken from John chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. John chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. And that can be found on page number 957 in the Bibles there in your pews. Page 957. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, uh, again, we welcome you. It's encouraging that you're here and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. We've had a wonderful weekend yesterday. The spree egg hunt was just fabulous. God's given us beautiful weather. He's given us a good uh, congregation to worship with, to serve him and surround him in fellowship. And that's what we're thinking about this month. Especially, we're thinking about being immersed into fellowship. A fellowship that first and foremost begins vertically with, with God. And then horizontally with God's people. How do you prepare someone for really hard and difficult times? What do you say in order to bring comfort to them even before the pain begins? You see, the text that was just so capably read is literally the words of Jesus that he shared with his closest disciples just a few hours before he was given the kiss of betrayal the arrest by his own people. That night, his beard would be plucked. The next morning, he would be taken to a kangaroo-type court that was so dishonest. And the only perfect man that's ever lived would be accused of blasphemy. He would be sentenced to death by Pilate himself. His back would be lashed open with what we think about as a bull whip that, that would, would have woven into it probably pieces of glass or, or pieces of sharp clay. And then when the crown of thorns was pressed into his brow, a cross was placed upon his shoulder. And Jesus, in a weakened condition, would drag that cross as far as he was physically able, and he would fall beneath the load of that cross, and later he would be reunited with that cross in Golgotha. There he would be affixed to it and all that would surround him. Some would almost cheer and rejoice because they were watching the brutality of an execution, a man they really wanted to see to die. And others would weep and others would mourn because their friend, the one that they placed so much hope in, he was going to be the king of Israel. But instead, they watched their hopes dashed is instead, he dies. How do you prepare people for that? What do you say? What illustration could be given that, that would show there's still hope? 
There's still hope even after that death. Because three days later, on a Sunday morning, he's going to arise. The tomb is going to be found empty. How could you illustrate that? Go back again to verse 20 and 21 there. And and notice in the text how the description is likened to a lady that is giving birth. Notice there, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. You remember how many times Jesus said, my hour's not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Except in this very same chapter, in the 16th chapter, he says, indeed, my hour has come. But as soon as she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Some of us try to understand this, and others of you here, you understand this perfectly. As a matter of fact, when I was working on this lesson Friday, I just sent out a little quick email to probably 15 or 20 ladies, and, and I attached this verse to the email. And it said, for those of us that haven't been through labor and delivered a baby and then known the joy, can you kind of describe to us what Jesus is talking about here when he chooses to use this illustration? A few of you replied back, Chrissy Foran, that's P.D. and Susan McCullough's uh, oldest daughter. She replies back, in each of these, I'm just going to skim some things. Says, that verse is so true. God was smart to give us the hormones after childbirth to make us forget. Otherwise, there might not be many people with more than one child. She describes a labor that was 40 hours long. And after much description and three hours of pushing, then her son Thomas She said, just hearing Thomas cry made it all worth it. From sorrow to joy. Everything melted away and all I could do was cry at the sound of him. It was the best moment in my life. I've got tears in my eyes now just thinking about it. I'd go through it all again, all 40 hours of labor, all three hours of pushing, just for that moment. Donna Crisp says her labor with Jacob began on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And she actually thought it was going to be a breeze, this thing called labor, because after all, she'd gone through Lamaze classes. But by Sunday evening at 9 o'clock, after four hours of intense labor, she knew that when the doctor offered a C-section, that that was fine. There was no need to pass that opportunity up. But then she says, just as God intended, my thoughts were no longer on the excruciating pain when they handed her the eight-pound, two-ounce baby boy. She said, but instead the thoughts was on this precious baby God had entrusted to us. Jacob brought us instant joy and another level to the meaning of unconditional love. Teresa Brown describes this moment, how everything changes when she says, but to hold them, well... There's no feeling in the world like it. It felt like you were holding a little piece of heaven in your arms. A friend of of mine from, from Alabama, Gina Brown, says, Labor for me was not a mind over matter situation. I wanted to die. But when they handed me that 10 pound, two and a half ounce future linebacker, he is quite a linebacker. 
She said, all I could do was laugh with joy. Amanda Whitlock describes problems with an IV, problems with both of her deliveries, with the epidural. And then finally, when Bowen arrived, she says, they wiped him a little, handed him to me. He was the cutest baby. All the other mothers are liars. Mine was the cutest, believe me. He had beautiful skin. It was the most precious little thing. And he had strong resemblance in my eyes to my dad who passed away from a heart attack when I was 14. To that was another blessing in and of itself to see a piece of him again. It was perfect. He slept and so quiet and sweet the first day, never a peep or anything. On the second day, they circumcised him and he didn't stop screaming for eight months. Melissa Welch describes her birth with Mackenzie. Mackenzie was born at 30 weeks old. She describes the hospital, the ambulance ride from Cookville to Baptist. She describes uh, so many details that just heart-wrenching. And then she says, but the first sight of our new baby girl was as they were wheeling her out and mashing the bag to get air into her to keep her alive. It wasn't until the next day they allowed us to see her and she was in the incubator and she was able to reach two arms into two holes and put her hands underneath her and hold her. She says, I went to my knees and I prayed to God to keep her alive. Stephanie Porter says, which by the way, if you don't know Stephanie well, uh, four children, three pregnancies, that's efficiency. And um, <clears throat> on her fourth child being born, she actually, for the first time, was going to get to experience labor uh, without a scheduled C-section. And she was excited about this, she says, for some odd reason. And then about an hour into the contractions, uh, they became very painful. Uh, she was hooked up to a monitor. Martin, her husband, is given play-by-play commentary, watching the monitor saying, Oh, look, that's good. That's a good one. But then when she thought that the contractions were so, so much, she ought to be at a four or five. Instead, she was still at a one, and she took the C-section. And then she says, God wasn't kidding when he said, I'll greatly increase your pain in childbearing in Genesis 3.16. But then she says, the first time you hold the child and hear its cries, you can't help but weep with excitement, happiness, and joy at the wonderful life God has blessed you with, placed in your care, and given you charge over. And finally, Michelle Myers says, when I first held Jacob, I had the most overwhelming feeling of God's love and his blessings. It's hard to convey, but all at once I remembered all the years of praying as a teenager for God to send me a Christian husband and for the prayers for a child to love and to raise for God. And it was like God was hugging me in his arms and I held my beautiful boy and looked at my husband. When she described the pain, she says, when the U.S., attacked Baghdad. They called it shock and awe. I knew how bad that could have been because that's how I describe the pain of childbirth. Shock and awe. What's Jesus trying to tell us? When Jesus gathers his disciples hours before all of this begins, what is he trying to tell us when he says... I can describe it to you this way. Your sorrow tonight and tomorrow and over the next couple of days is going to be like a woman in delivery. But the joy, not just any joy, it's from this sorrow. This sorrow is going to turn to joy. And that joy 
is going to be so, so very great. Look with me, if you will, in John, the 16th chapter, in verse 19 and 20 again. It's the text that has uh, just read just a few moments ago. I'd like for you to notice at the end of verse 20, John 16, 19 and 20, says, Most assuredly, at the end in 20, he says, Most assuredly, I say unto you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, for your sorrow will be turned to joy. What was the sorrow? Were you with me? Will you walk with me for just a few moments through some of the times of sorrow? Let's think about Jesus' sorrow in Luke, the 22nd chapter, in verse 44. You remember when we went to the Garden of Gethsemane? And you see there in 44 where he says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We know from other passages that he lay prostrate in the, on the ground. We know from the book of Hebrews that he cried vehement cries because the pain was so great. What was Jesus experiencing? He was experiencing the sorrow that would have to be experienced before there could be the deliverance of the new life and the great joy. When we look at Judas in Matthew, the 27th chapter, the one who portrayed the Lord, he too experienced sorrow. Look at verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Can you imagine Judas' moment when it dawned on him, what I have done is going to lead to Jesus Christ's death. He's probably thinking, that's not the way I saw this unfold. That's not what I meant for the end of this betrayal to be. I'm remorseful. I'm sorrowful. I'll give back the money. I don't want anything to do with this. Or we think about Peter's sorrow. Look at Luke 22 and 62 where it says, And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. What is bitter weeping? You describe a man crying. An image comes to mind. What image comes to mind when you say that man, he wept bitterly? It was a man who just hours before had been told by the Lord, you're going to deny me three times. And he declared, Lord, I would go with you. I want to go with you. Lord, I would give up my life to go with you. Lord, I would never deny you. And as he denied the third time that he even knew Jesus Christ, remorse. Deep pain filled him as he left from there. And he went out to find a place to weep bitterly. When we look at Luke, the 23rd chapter and 27, we see the women. Imagine this scene. By this time, Jesus' back has been ripped open. Some people didn't live through the scourging. As a matter of fact, those that would scourge had to be trained of how to brutalize a man without taking his life. And now with this scene of the crowns in his brow, the cross is laid on his back and he begins the parade, if you will, to Golgotha. And people follow. Many are going to follow, just as Jesus has already said in the text that we've read. They're going to be rejoicing because they want Jesus to die. But then in this text, we're reminded that not everyone felt that way. Can you imagine this scene? And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented. And then we see those travelers who on Sunday morning, 
They'd given up on the fact that Jesus would ever resurrect. They were told that Jesus was going to be the king that would redeem Israel. And so now when Jesus appears to them, them not knowing it was Jesus, notice what he says to them in 17. What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Friends, those that love the Lord, sorrow was everywhere. But there was one thing that was going to turn that sorrow to joy. It was that Sunday morning when the tomb was found empty and Jesus was seen. Do you remember these passages? Matthew, the 28th chapter and verse 8, what Jesus said to the women... So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. What's happening here? Exactly what he said back in John 16 was going to happen. He says, your sorrow is going to be great, but it's like childbirth. Once you see the one alive again, there's no longer that great sorrow. Once you see that child that's been born, once you see Jesus that's been given life again. And so what does he say? He says to them exactly what he prophesied they were going to experience. He says to them, rejoice. It's a great moment. It's a moment that these individuals would never forget. Peter and John And John, the 20th chapter in verse 3 and 4, when they received word that the tomb was found empty, you remember it says that they both ran together. Here's grown men and they're running to a tomb. Why? Because they're so excited. They have so much joy that perhaps it really is true. Jesus truly is alive. And you remember those travelers on the road when finally it was revealed to them that the one they were talking to was Jesus Christ? Look in verse 32. They said to one another... Of Luke, the 24th chapter, verse 32, they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. What's happening here? They talked with each other about how they felt. Isn't this wonderful? How did you feel? And then they said, even though they were turning in for the evening, they couldn't stay there. They got up and they ran their their long journey back to Jerusalem instead of resting that evening because they had to talk about the resurrected one that now is bringing so much joy at the time that they felt so hopeless. Now their hope was restored. You remember Thomas's sorrow turned to joy? You remember in John the 20th chapter, Thomas wasn't there when the others were gathered? And so when they left and said that they had seen the resurrected Lord, you remember Thomas doubted. And you remember, he said, until I see the prince and and see his side, I'll not believe. And so we see that the Lord came to him and he showed him his prince. And he said to cast your hand into my side. And you remember Thomas's explanation in verse 28. Thomas answered and he said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, You have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was blessed. 
his sorrow was turned to joy. But then God commends all those that would believe without seeing the prince. He says they're going to be blessed. They're going to be happy. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to find a fulfillment and a purpose in life. And then we see Peter's sorrow turn to joy. In John, the 21st chapter, remember when there were seven of them out fishing that night and they didn't realize that it was Jesus on the seashore. And remember, Jesus came along and told them to cast the nets on the other side. And when their nets immediately filled up, they put two and two together and they said, this is our Lord. And when Peter recognized that it was the Lord, he couldn't wait for the boat to take him to shore. He immediately jumps out of the boat, plunging himself into the water because he had to reach his Lord. I'd like for you to go back to the chapter of our text, John the 16th chapter. I'd like for you to notice verse 31. After Jesus gives this illustration to them of it's going to be like a woman going through great sorrow and giving birth and and then there's that great moment of joy and celebration. I'd like for you to notice how he closes this chapter. In John 16 and 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? The now is tied to crisis. Now that I've told you what's going to happen, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone. Sometimes we really give Peter down the road. How many times have you heard someone talk about Peter and say, oh yes, he was always messing up. Friends, it wasn't just Peter that messed up that night. Jesus says, all of you are going to scatter tonight. There won't be any one of you that will be brave enough to stand beside me tonight. You'll all scatter. Where does that leave Jesus? And yet, I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Jesus, why are you speaking these things? He's letting them know that when they wake up like Peter and and you go out and you weep bitterly and maybe you want to say it's all over. There's no hope for me. Look, I am the biggest loser in the world. He's already prophesying ahead of time for them to say, you know what? You're not the biggest loser. Don't worry about me, Jesus is saying. When you thought I was all alone, God was still with me. God didn't forsake me. God was with me. So where does that leave you? That leaves you with a choice. Do you want to stay out in the world? There's tribulation out there. Or do you want to be in me? Friends, we've been thinking about fellowship all month. We can either be in Christ and we can have fellowship. Or we can be in the world and we can have fellowship with the world. But we can't have fellowship with both. And so he's saying, choose it. When you lose it. When you are in depths of sorrow and you've done things that you've regretted, are you going to be like one that stays in labor all of your life? Or are you going to be like one that experiences joy and says, you know what, I've had my time of sorrow and now I want to live in my time of joy. Why did Jesus go through what Jesus went through? 
It was so that we wouldn't have to stay in sorrow for a lifetime and for an eternity. He wants to bring us joy for just a few minutes. I want you to think about, we've clearly seen what Jesus' sorrow and how it was turned to joy. I want you to think about some of these passages. We just skimmed some things real quick as we close this lesson. Look with me, if you will, and and look at this slide where we have from sorrow to joy, Romans 3 and 23. I'd like for you to notice we have several passages listed. Where are we? Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the big deal about that? Romans 6 and 23, sin equals death. And Galatians 6 and 7, what we sow, we must reap. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, sin separates us from God. Paul's right there. So where are we? Friends, we're in deep sorrow. We're in a situation where we're sinners. Our sin separates us from God. We can be like Peter. We can be like the apostles. We can look back and say, I've scattered when I shouldn't scattered. I've left when I should have stayed and served. I've been disloyal when I should have stayed and been loyal. All of us have sinned. And so what's the answer? In 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter in verse 10, he gives a beautiful description of sorrow. Now think, we don't want to stay in sorrow, but we must have sorrow to get to where we need to get to. Notice what he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's two types of sorrow. One is sorrow of the world. We've sinned and we're sorry. Why? Usually it's because we got caught. Usually because there's going to be some kind of earthly consequence that we don't want to have to pay. And so we sin and we're sorry. But then there's a sorrow that is godly sorrow. And it's the sorrow where we truly are sorry that we have sinned against the almighty God. I think about the words of Jerry Bridges when he says sin is wrong. Not because of what it does to me or my spouse or my children or my neighbor but because it is an act of rebellion against the infinitely holy and majestic God. We can't come to know the joy that is brought through the resurrected Lord until we know the sorrow because of our sins that we have committed. Now notice in Galatians 3 and 27, we learn that For as many of you as have baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. We're baptized where? Into Christ Jesus. That means we've left the world and now we're in fellowship with Christ, His body. As we close this lesson, I'd like for you to think what's offered to you. I mean literally what is in your grasp this very moment. There's a story about a man who wanted to sell his farm. And there was a poet that he was very close friends with. And the poet knew the man's farm very well. And so he went to him and he said, I'm going to put an ad in the paper to sell my farm But I would like for you to write the ad since you are so eloquent with words. And so the man wrote these words for sale 
a beautiful property where birds sing at dawn in the extensive woodland, bisected by the brilliant and sparkling waters of a large stream. The house is bathed by the rising sun. It offers tranquil shade in the evening on the veranda. Later on, the poet saw his friend again and said, Well, did you sell your farm? And he answered, No. He said, When I read the words that you wrote, I realized that the treasure was mine. What are you doing with the treasure? God died for all of us. He offers it to all. He offers us fellowship in Him. He offers us the opportunity to leave the sorrow of the world. The eternal punishment that the world will receive. He died so that we could enjoy that. What are we doing with it? He went through sorrow of death so that there could be a resurrection of life. People that loved Him went through sorrow and their hope was restored when He was resurrected. All that love Him today are truly sorry for the sins that they've committed. And they realize that the only hope they'll ever have is through Him. This morning, there's not a person here perfect. But we can all leave here happy, joyous, experiencing the joy that Jesus would say is a lot like a newborn baby. The sorrow has been turned to joy. Do you have sorrow in your life that you want to quit carrying the guilt of? Do you have those phases of your life that you don't want to remember anymore? Do you have those times, those things that you regret that you say... I want to turn those to joy. There's only one that can do that. If you want to be immersed into Christ, or if you want to be restored, we'd love to help you take a step closer to your God this morning. Come as we stand, as we sing.